I'm going to read Esther 6 and 7. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen, Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. 
so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Great. Thanks again, Leah, for reading. Welcome, guys, to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. And um, especially if you're new, as Leo was saying before, glad you're with us. We are in uh, week three of four in the book of Esther. So we'll finish up next week. And then uh, if you're wondering where we're going after that, we're going to preach through the book of 1 Timothy uh, all summer. So, um, which is re- really exciting for us because we never actually preached through not just that book, but any of the pastoral epistles um, in our 14 and a half years as a church. So it should be uh, a lot of fun to get through that. Very exciting, encouraging, formative, gospel-rich, um, kind of tricky book in a lot of ways too. Some, some uh, interesting passages in there. So anyway, uh, but today we're going to look at a desperate plea, Esther's plea before the king. Kind of the climax of the book in a lot of ways. Last week we built up to it. Today she actually makes the plea itself and successful, as we just heard uh, from chapters 6 and 7. Uh, the book is, if you're just joining us though, this is an Old Testament book that takes place towards the end of Israel's history in the Old Testament before Christ, uh, Christ comes. And so um, it is uh, the 5th century BC, but the book of Esther is essentially about God helping a young Jewish woman in, woman in Persian captivity with her people, the Jewish people, to become the new queen and to have leverage necessary to advocate for people to save them from this kind of intra-Persian genocide. So remember, God's people are in captivity, which is a commonplace thing for them in the Old Testament. It, it resembles us being in captivity to our sin and to the ultimate enemy, which is not physical but spiritual. We've been talking about that in this series, so this is our story too. But the conflict in the story arises uh, when, to kind of summarize today's passage a bit, when Mordecai, Esther's cousin, did not bow down to the king's number two guy named Haman. This is last week. So Haman proceeds to get a law passed that would destroy all the Jews in one day. And remember, up to today, uh, the king does not, still doesn't know that Esther, his wife, is Jewish. So that becomes this huge kind of twist in the story, um, which we hear about today. So the resolution then in Esther, as we read, occurs when God causes the king to have insomnia. He pulls out this one book from his shelf, which happens to talk about Mordecai saving his life, um, and not being honored for that. So he wants to honor him, uh, and so he does honor Mordecai above Haman, his number two guy, which is kind of the first domino to fall and a foreshadowing of what would come next. But the true resolution, of course, is when Esther advocates for a people, she makes this plea, and the king realizes that Haman's plot would have killed his wife. So if this thing would have actually gone through, it gets very personal for the king, it would have actually killed Esther because she's Jewish. So... um, then the king leaves the room in anger. He comes back in right when Haman's trying to beg Esther for his life and falling on top of her. And he's already in a tire. He loses his mind, the king does. At this point, thinking this guy is sexually assaulting my wife right in my home. That, of course, just, he goes over the edge, orders his execution, and he's hanged on the very pole or gallows that Haman had originally constructed for Mordecai. So, a lot of you know the book of Esther. Some of you don't yet, but hopefully you heard in that story. There's a lot of, like, surprising twists. Uh, I mean, theology aside, I mean, I hate to say that, but theology aside, it's an amazing story, uh, right? I mean, this is like, you can maybe even like think of some of your favorite movies that borrow from some of these motifs and think, man, they plagiarized Esther. What's going on here? But um, lots of cool twists and things that make you laugh. It makes you like fist pump, you know, it makes you all all these kind of things, Uh, lots of emotions. So uh, but before we move on though today, I, into like the passage at hand, I want to just quickly revisit this idea of providence or God's sovereign loving involvement in all things 
that we talked about in week one because um, it really comes back to the forefront today. God's quiet string pulling behind the scenes of the story. So by that I just mean themes like the king just happened to have insomnia one night, the, the perfect night, that, and he just happened to ask for one book on the shelf that, that happened to mention Mordecai and this assassination attempt on him, the king, that Mordecai helped, helped to, to foil. And Esther just happened to be Jewish. That came up a couple of weeks ago uh, as well. And to dis- but to disclose that now at the perfect time, even that little piece of carpet or whatever it was that tripped Haman so he would fall on top of Esther right when the king was walking back into the room. Uh, you know, God's fingerprints are all over even the smallest of details of these things. And as we've been saying in the series, that is important for us theologically and practically because not only does it celebrate God's love for his people, for people like us, but because it's the same God who never changes that's involved with our stories every day. As the Bible says, he is working, God is all things together for our good. And all things means even, even difficult things, right? Not just all the good things, but all the difficult things. And we're seeing that certainly take place in Esther. But again, because he doesn't change and because this is kind of the microcosm of our story, uh, we're invited into that to see um, his good working through the difficulties in our life as well uh, for our greater good. It's also a reminder that, as we see in Esther, we just ride the wave of God's grace. We don't make the wave ourselves. We ride the wave of grace, but we don't actually make that uh, tremor or that uh, blowing of wind or that thing that actually makes the wave in the first place. The events of Esther, I think, are meant to be so ridiculously coincidental that we just couldn't help but say, it must be God. It has to be. It couldn't just happen this way. It's... there's too much luck, too many things that, that if they didn't line up perfectly, the people of Israel wouldn't be saved. And the truth is, when you think this way, when you use that phrase, must be God, the truth is, the events of our salvation, our conversion, our spiritual journeys are also so ridiculously unexplainable, if we really think about it, that we just have to say, must be God, to why we're saved at all. Uh, St. Jerome said in the 4th century AD, when we are concerned with grace and mercy, free will is in part void. So what he's saying is grace has to do with God's involvement in our life and free will has to do with this notion of us responding to him or maybe moving towards him in some way. And so what he's saying is um, when we really see the, the, the theme of grace exemplified in the story, we have to kind of press down our notion of how much we have to do with our salvation. It doesn't mean that we have no choice or like no real callings to respond to God or anything like that. It just means that it's at least in part void. Like this idea of a perfect free will before God. Actually, God loves us too much to make things totally up to our free will. He loves us way too much for that. He's way more involved. And so again, in the same way that we'd respond in Esther, I think Esther is meant to shape how we answer the question, why am I a Christian at all? Like, what do you guys say when someone asks you that question? Why are you a Christian? What happened? What led up to that? And I think um, there's lots of things we could say to that that could be true, but I think what Esther invites us into is to adding God himself more into that answer than we might otherwise be inclined, you know, to say. Is it more our response? Is it more our choice? Is it more this mechanical prayer that we prayed? Or is it God behind everything in our life wooing us to himself? Uh, causing our salvation 
through his son's bloody hands and bloody side and bloody crucifixion. I think that the way we answer that says a lot about how big grace is in our life. And, and again, Esther, I think, is meant to do a lot of things, but I think it's meant in part to shape how we answer the question, why am I a Christian? How did I become one? And uh, to push up grace and to push down ourselves in that. So, all right, lots to say about that. Uh, I'm just kind of like re-scratching the surface here for today because we're talking about the climax and more of these ridiculous coincidences kind of come up again and make us think about these things. So, uh, but switching gears, remember our interpretational approach to the book. Uh, it has been to follow the Bible's lead and reading itself in a Christ-centered way. In other words, a way that sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the scriptures, or as Peter prayed before, a way that sees Christ's fingerprints over the stories ahead of time, a way that shows how the shadows of Jesus give way to Jesus himself in the New Testament, a way that reads Esther as though it was a part of, actually part of the Bible, part of a greater story rather than on an island. So today we have uh, three big themes, kind of like last week, I want to do a similar thing if you hear last week, uh, three big things and themes that flow from the three big characters in the book, Mordecai, Esther, and Haman. So Mordecai's, we'll look at Mordecai's honor, the honor he gets, we'll look at Esther's plea and what we learned there, and then we'll look at Haman's death and um, some particular things we learn uh, there, actually, actually some pretty climactic things, so we'll come there later. Let's start, though, with the honor that we see Mordecai being given by the king. A really interesting, fun part of the story. You probably notice, though, the intended contrast between Haman and Mordecai, right? One is rising up, one is falling down, one is being honored, one is being punished. And again, it's all happening in the most unlikely of ways. If we weren't Christians, we'd probably say Mordecai was so lucky, but we know better than to credit it all uh, to luck, as we've been saying. Still, the contrast is meant to be extreme. It's a part of the surprising and exciting climax to the book. Haman says at one point, who could the king be wanting to honor but me because I'm so amazing, right? So there's this moment, you know as the reader doesn't mean that, of course, that's why it makes it so fun to read because you're like, it's like the, you know, the kid in class who's raising, raising his hand to the teacher, you know, like wanting to honor somebody and then realizing, oh, she wasn't talking about me or something, sitting back down. And it's kind of one of those moments where he's like thinking that he's the best or he's the most honorable. He's the one that um, the king is wanting to do this for. But, but of course, totally blinded by his pride, he misses it entirely. So what happens then is the second, this is like the, the stark contrast. The se- not just two, it's not just two men. It's the second in command over the entire Persian Empire. He's executed in place of a no-name exile, like an oppressed minority, a non-Persian so it's this really stark flip, this really unexpected, uh, jarring twist of events. And, and, and when you guys read your Bibles, when you come across contrasts like this, dualisms, juxtapositions of two things or two types of people that are different and you can tell are meant to contrast, when you see that, you will almost always find theology. So I know a lot of you are new to the Bible, so just kind of tuck that away because the Bible is... So many things, but it is, an, it, it is a story of contrasts. It is a tale of contrasts. There's two testaments, and in this case, there are two men who differ and um, bump up against each other in a way to tell a story. So Haman and Mordecai, then, are just one more iteration of that story. Like, maybe even right now, you're thinking of other stories in the Bible where you have two 
people or two women or two wives or two mountains or two exoduses or two covenants or two uh, sacrificial systems or, uh, in this case, two men um, who um, tell a story with their differences. So the, the point here is it's more than Haman just picturing pride and Mordecai just picturing humility, though I kind of brought that up last week and that's definitely a part of this. Like Haman's story is definitely a cautionary tale against pride, which we all have a lot more than we realize. But it's more than that. It is a theology in the unexpected. Uh, The Bible is, I would say, grace actually is uh, the theology of surprise, the theology of the twist. Uh, We're supposed to read this and think, wait a minute here. What exactly happened again? Like, what kind of, who are these people? Who are these men? And and who exactly is being dishonored? Who exactly is being honored? It's actually unfair in a lot of ways. I mean, the guy who worked tirelessly for his exalted status lost it and the one who wasn't working for it at all got it he got to wear the king's robes and was paraded through the streets on a white horse and the number two guy in all the land um, right underneath the king was killed in the most humiliating ways possible in one sense Haman was kind of right to expect honor because he was the likeliest candidate obviously it's clouded with sheer it's clouded with sheer pride but he couldn't have been more wrong, though, at the same time, right? But, but he, here's, the, here's the point of theology. This sounds a lot like grace, doesn't it? That's what we're supposed to think. When you think about a, a theology of the unexpected, a theology of the great reversal, it's supposed to make us think about the principle of grace. It reminded me of this passage in Romans 10, where God speaks, Paul sets it up, uh, the author, but... God speaks, where it says, Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. This is what things are like in God's kingdom. When God gathers a people to himself, he's gathering people who weren't seeking for him. And we tend to think it's only those who seek for God who find him. Well, this actually checks that a bit. It says, actually, many Christians, if it's not all of our story in some, on some level, but he's saying part, partly what it understands to be a person of God is to be found when you're not actually wanting to be found. Being sought for when you're not seeking, right? So this isn't saying, like, even Jesus says, ask and seek and knock, right? So it's not saying that the asking and seeking is bad. It's just saying that God puts a qualifying statement on that in the prophets in the Old Testament saying, actually, what it means to be a person of God is to be found by me. Even in a state of such, such blind sin that you're not even at all seeking for God, God still finds you. Isn't that amazing? What if that, let me just ask you guys a question. What if that was your story? Would that encourage you? It might offend you and it might encourage you at the same time. It probably should. Grace does that. Grace should be like the most offensive thing in the universe and the best news you've ever heard at the same time. It's a bitter pill, and yet the best drink of cold water in the desert you've ever had in your life. If it's not one of those, it might be a little bit of a weakened definition of grace or the gospel. But if this is true, man, God must really love us. He must be much more of a pursuer of us than we formerly thought. Much more involved in our lives than we thought possible. Right? It at least like, gives us categories for these types of definitions of God that we may not have had before. So again, back to Esther. These stories are not just lessons on the importance of being humble. 
It's more complex than that. These are carefully crafted ironies to show us the principle of grace. Exaltation or salvation comes to those who aren't asking or seeking for it. That is to say, salvation comes to us by God's hands alone, by grace and not by our good works, period. Not even by like our seeking of God all the time, but rather completely, totally, every day, forever, by God's hand alone, not by us. So now maybe you hear that and think, yeah, I I totally hear that, but if we're going to press that metaphor, doesn't Mordecai do something, though, that leads to his exaltation in foiling the plot of the assassination? And the answer to that is yes, technically speaking. But you could also twist the diamond here in the light a bit and, and look at a different facet to see the same theme of grace arise when we see that even though Mordecai is honored, that's just the first domino. Even though Mordecai is honored, he's not the ultimate reason in his honoring that the Jews are saved. Or to put it another way, Mordecai's work doesn't save the Jews, but rather Esther's plea. All right? So it doesn't really matter how you look at it. It could be number two up here. It could be number three. Um, But the idea is in a layered sense, the Bible is just showing forth the principle of uh, grace over and against works when it comes to salvation. Let's shift to Esther's plea then. Verses 3 and 4 say, let my life, this is, this is the, basically the climax of the whole book. It's all been working towards this moment. She says to the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold in order to be killed and annihilated. So we talked extensively about this last week. I'm, I'm not going to go into it in, in full. But remember last week that Esther risked her life to go before the king, Right? And in chapter 5, which we did not read um, today, what happened was she did go before him. She did not lose her life. The golden scepter was extended, if you remember that idea from last week. She requested a feast where she'd have further access to Hazarus so she could, at the right moment, expose Haman and make a plea. So in this, we see a lot of Jesus' imagery. Jesus also went before us into God's presence in the inner sanctuary where we couldn't go to advocate for us with his own blood, uh, not saying just if I perish, I perish, but when I perish, I perish. So that was last week, and there's a lot more to say, but that was essentially last week. This week, though, there's another detail that we didn't talk um, about that comes to the surface today, and that is what I'll call the importance of the intimacy between the king and Esther, and also Esther's unique role as a go-between. So the first part of that, I'll, I'll, I'll say the king and you can see this in the story, the king clearly wants to do this, right? And if the king's a picture of God, then that means a lot. If he's just a guy, it doesn't mean a lot. But if it's a picture of God, then it means God wants to save us as, as well. But you at least see this, that the king wants to grant Esther's request, whatever it is, you could ask for anything. But then digging deeper, it's actually Esther's unique role as both the wife of the king and the cousin to Mordecai that helps her advocate. This is really important to see. If you get nothing else from today, um, you know, see against the backdrop of last week, because it's it's more than this, but see this. Esther's unique role as both the wife of the king and the cousin of Mordecai. She is a Persian queen and a Jewish woman, right? She's both. She's like the king in that she's royalty, but she's like the Jews in her ethnicity, right? 
She kind of has a bit of a two-person nature to her. Whereas if she didn't, the advocacy wouldn't have been possible. If she wasn't queen, she obviously wouldn't have access to the king nor his love. If she wasn't Jewish, she wouldn't care about any of this. Or wouldn't be able to say, my people are going to be killed. Not just a people, but my people. She'd be able to say that, right? It wouldn't have the same power to it. Okay, here's the theology. This is why it's important to know this stuff. And by the way, this is a repeated theme in the Bible. Daniel's like this in the Old Testament. If you know his story, he's second in command as well in Babylon, but also Jewish. So it becomes Babylonian kind of, or royal, but um, also Jewish. And then Joseph, back in Genesis. Remember his story? He's second to Pharaoh. Uh, so he's Egyptian, kind of, and yet he's a Hebrew, right? This is a repeated theme. We're supposed to see this to get here. And that is, Jesus is the same. All those things exist for the sake of Jesus Christ, who himself had a two-person nature to him. He's both God and man, fully God and fully man. He's royalty like God and human like us, oppressed people, sentenced to death like the Jews in Persia. He's a perfect intermediary, born of woman, but conceived of by the Spirit of God. So no earthly father. Kind of like Esther, actually, if you remember. It says that she has no father or mother. So kind of a hearkening ahead to Jesus there in that regard as well. But this is everything. Without the virgin birth, without Jesus being both God and man, like Esther has both royalty and Jewishness, there'd be no mediation. If Christ was not God, he'd have no power to save us, but he would also have no access to the Father to advocate for us. He would just be like a sinful man, maybe a really good man, but still not God, right? So if he wasn't God, there would be no advocacy, there would be no access, there would be no power to save. But if he was not fully human, he would have no plea, he'd have no ability to truly empathize with us and advocate and substitute for us as a human being. You see how it's similar? Hebrews 2 uh, says this, where it says um, that he, Jesus, had to be made like us in every respect so he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in the service of God to save us from our sins. This is saying Jesus had to become human. There's no way he could have done what he did if he was only divine, kind of looked human, if he wasn't actually a human being in every way you are except your sin. He couldn't have done what he did. Fully God and fully man. Esther's royalty, a Persian queen, yet fully Jewish. It's her unique role as a go-between, as being both, that gives her that leverage, that place, right? That role as an advocate. The ear of the king, his love, and that power to advocate an inner sanctuary that Christ would do at a much higher level later in the story. All right, so the, although we see hints and in glimpses of the incarnation of Jesus in the Old Testament, like here in Esther or in Daniel or in Joseph, in the Old Testament proper, we don't see this, right? We don't see the incarnation happen. There's no God becoming human in the Old Testament, just God shouting unkeepable laws from mountaintops, which preclude separation. Kind of drawing near, but not being able to because there's no incarnation. There's, there's no God becoming flesh. But in the New Testament, it's different. God, in the New Testament, God, it starts by Jesus being born. It starts with his genealogy. It starts with his birth narrative, Matthew 1. God takes on human flesh, which means he enters into our mess in order to love us by taking on our sin. 
rescuing us not with shouts of law, but whispers of grace, which precludes union. Or, sorry, which leads to union. And, and you, can, you can be secure in your salvation knowing that the one that God loves more than anyone, his son, the son said about you before the father, please save them, father, they're with me. He put his arm around you. He said, I, I want to die for them. I want to advocate for them. They're okay. They're with me. And so the eternal love the father has for the son, kind of like the king has for Esther, that's where like, I mean, if you're a Jew in that day and you know about this law, man, talk about fear. But then to know you have an advocate, you have, you, your advocate is the one the king loves more than anybody in the land. And she's going to back you. Talk about rock-solid hope. Rock-solid hope. That's what you guys should have. Not in yourself, not in your works, not in just some idea, but an actual person who lived, who was also the Son of God, who could serve as this go-between. The one the Father loved more than anybody in the universe, his one and only Son, he listens to him. And the Son says, they're okay, they're with me. And, uh, and, and God, through that, of course, working with the Son, works for our salvation. God isn't, God's arm's not being twisted here, like King Ahasuerus, right? But even greater than that, the King's arm's not, God's arm's not being twisted. He wants to save you. He's doing that through the offering up of his Son for your very sins. And that's where we go next, this last, last part, which is Haman's death. Let's read um, verses 8 to 10 again to remind you what this says. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. All right, there's... Three layers of this I'll work through uh, fairly quickly here. First, um, Haman, as we talked about last week, as all of the enemies of God's people are elsewhere in the story, is a picture of the greater enemy, that they are undercurrents of the, the greater story, which is sin, death, and the devil himself. And so Haman here uh, is a picture of God destroying evil, of condemning sin, and defeating death. Um, one thing that you uh, kind of see here is the, the, the notion of God using evil to destroy evil. Uh, it's a common thing in theology. We talk about with how um, the, the devil wanted to incite Jesus' death through Judas, but that ensured his own demise. Uh, or or uh, take the devil out of the picture, it's God using the worst of injustices, his son's own death, which was a great injustice, the worst of, worst of all, to bring about salvation uh, for us. We kind of see that picture here. But at least see the notion that Jesus is like Esther. He's the true and better Esther who with his advocacy destroyed your sin, condemned it uh, in the flesh. Romans 8, 8, 3, I believe says that. Um, overwhelmed death and overcame our great adversary, our great accuser uh, who, is, who is not Haman but the devil, a foe and an enemy. All right? Here's the bad news, though. So I guess there's kind of some bad news in that. Uh, backing up a little bit, uh, what I want you to see here is it's not always just this simple, though. I, I think, I know I do this. Um, I'm guessing most of you, if not all of you, do this. But when you read about, like, a really bad guy, I mean, when you saw Haman say, 
who could the guy be wanting to honor except me, you know? Or when he saw him lose his mind, when one guy wouldn't bow down to him, it's easy to look at that and say, well, that reminds me a lot of someone else, right? And you think about, it's my coworker I hate or something like that, right? Or it's this person that wouldn't bow down to me, figuratively speaking, or it's this person that disrespects me all the time, or this person that's full of themselves. I know somebody like that. But let me just say, don't do that. That might be true that there are people like Haman. That there's always been people like Haman. There's always been people like them roaming the earth. But part of the point here is to hold this up like a mirror and not like, you know, one of those big pointing finger things you get at football games, right? Uh, and pointing out at people. And this is a mirror uh, that's supposed to hold up and we're supposed to look in it and say, where do I see myself in this person? And if we're honest with ourselves, um, He's actually quite a bit like us. I know I said this last week. Some of you weren't here. Haman is a picture of us. He's an arrogant fool. Uh, we are just as bad. We, are, we have pride. We think of ourselves more than others. We have betrayed people. We have hated them. And as Jesus says, if you hate people, you've murdered them in your heart. So we're also murderers. Um, we are racists. Uh, we, are, uh, we have um, superiority complexes. Uh, all, all these things. Haman has. They, they, have, they, they have been seeped into the human DNA since Adam and Eve, since the very beginning. Um, and, but, but here's the kicker. If part of the message of Esther is people like this exist and they die because of it and it's good that they die, then this book becomes a crushing weight that none of us can live under. And so we need then not just a God who destroys evil, because if he just destroys evil, he destroys us, but we need a God to come in between those two things somehow, working to destroy evil, which is good, but sparing us evil ones at the same time. How can that be possible? How can that be done? And the answer is in the complexity of who Esther is. The two-person nature, the two-ness, the duality of Esther. That's the answer in this story, but even more in the gospel story, the greater story of the Bible, is we need a God-man. We need a bridge. We need one who is exactly like us and yet exactly like God at the same time to bridge us, to intercede. So the better news here, the third final layer is not just that Haman's death is hope that God will destroy evil someday, as I just said, but that God, as a human being, will take on our sin. In other words, Haman's death here in the story is actually a picture of Jesus's. The one who knew no sin, but who would become sin for us on the cross. The one who would come to interrupt our Haman-like fate. Because all of you and I have a Haman-like end to our lives unless we're saved by Jesus. All of us are heading the same way. But if Jesus interrupts that with a Haman-like death, he comes in between and says, nope, me first. I die like Haman does, so the rest of the world who believes me doesn't have to. I'll go first, and I'll be the final one. So all who believe in me, trust in me, like the, the rest of the Jews in Persia, we'll read about this next week, the outflow of this, will be saved. That's the good news. And so if you look at Haman's death then, I put here he's a wrath abater, that's one of the things. But there's a lot of similarities. Maybe some of you guys caught this. But if you think about the way Haman dies and who he is and Jesus is, look at all these similarities. Both Haman and Jesus are royalty. They're both number twos. 
of sorts, Jesus being God's son. Both had their faces covered before being executed. Both are hung on a gallows or a tree or a pole. The Hebrew word can mean all those um, words in case you weren't here for that last week. But both are hung on a tree or a cross. Both of, the, both of their deaths were followed by wrath being abated. So in Esther, the king's wrath is quelled after Haman dies. In God's story, his wrath against you and your sin is quelled when Jesus dies. This is, guys, this is how bad things are. It's not just that we've done a couple of bad things. It's that God's wrath is against us. But his love is, his love is the thing that comes in between it, right? In between us and him. Like his love comes in to swoop and to save. And, but the wrath being abated is a massive thing. It's so bad, actually. Our, our state was so bad that we needed Jesus to come into this story to become like the worst of people for us. That's how bad it was. That's what it cost God. But he was willing to spend it for you because he loved you so much. Isn't that just amazing? That's true right now in this very room, by the way. That wasn't true 20 years ago, earlier in your spiritual journey. Not just an idea or a concept. It's a truth right now living in this very room. Do you believe it? God is like this. The love of God saved you from the wrath of God. God God the Father and God the Son schemed together to save you from the destruction of evil, though you and I were evil to the core. Keep going here. So number five, um, both their deaths preceded the salvation of God's people, just thinking chronologically. And then six, both of their deaths freed people from a law that would otherwise harm them. This has been a big theme too we've been talking about, but if you look at Hebrews 9, it says, therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from sins committed under the first covenant. So in short, in both Esther and in our like greater, the greater biblical story, there are laws that aren't helpful. There are laws that imprison. There are laws that kill. Um, even the good laws of the old, like the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament um, separated. They didn't help. They weren't able to be kept 2 Corinthians 3, 6, right, says the law kills, but the Spirit of God gives life. So what Jesus did when he came in light of a law that was going to eradicate the Jews or a law that, was going, that harmed us, even the good laws don't save you. Your keeping of them doesn't save you. That actually, if you start to define your life, they push you further away. Uh, we needed someone to replace the laws with himself. And Esther, again, is a glimpse of that. Uh, the law, which was going to ensure the eradication of the Jews, uh, points to how Jesus would come to do away with the law, the Old Testament, and give way to a New Testament wrapped around his body. And then seven, like Haman made the gallows that would one day kill him, as the old country singer Barbara Mandrell said, uh, sang. I actually didn't know she said this. I thought someone else said this. I didn't even know who she is. But uh, apparently she's a, an old country singer. But she's the one that coined it this way. It's really good. It fits Esther really well. She said, or she sang, God grew the tree that he knew would be used to make the old rugged cross. You guys see that connection? Like Haman made the thing that would eventually kill him. It's actually the same with God. God grew the tree that he knew would one day kill his son, and he still grew it. It's pretty cool. 
God grew the tree that one day he knew would kill a son and he didn't allow it to be squelched or quenched or diseased or infested but allowed it to grow so it could make a cross, a sturdy one that would hold his body one day. That's commitment. God is committed to your salvation. He wants you to be saved. And that's yet again another piece we see here in the way, the circumstances around how Jesus died. But however you slice it, whether you see it in Esther's plea or in Haman's death, we see a Jesus who puts himself in harm's way uh, for, for you and me. And that, that's the gospel. We pray. Father, thank you for this passage, its complexities and its beauties. Uh, thank you, God, for calling, calling out to us uh, in many and various layered ways in this passage, saying, this is who I am. This is what my son is like. This is what I've done to save you. This is how much it's about me and not about you, and many, many, many other things as well. Um, please save us, God. Jesus, uh, intercede for us. Make the plea. Thank you for shedding your blood and dying in our place that the, the wrath of the king might be abated, that we might be saved. Um, pray for all those things and more that you would grow us in the knowledge of these things and give us joy this week. In Christ we pray, amen.